0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Chapter 4, from H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. It is only with vast hesitancy and repugnance that I let my mind go back to Lakes Camp and what we really found there, and do that other thing beyond the Mountains of Madness. I am constantly tempted to shirk the details, and to let hints stand for actual facts and ineluctable deductions. I hope I have said enough already to let me glide briefly over the rest, the rest, that is, of the horror of the camp. I have told of the wind-ravaged terrain, the damaged shelters, the disarranged machinery, the varied uneasiness of our dogs, the missing sledges and other items, the deaths of men and dogs, the absence of Gedney, and the six insanely buried biological specimens, "'strangely sound in texture for all their structural injuries, "'from a world forty million years dead. "'I do not recall whether I mentioned "'that upon checking up the canine bodies "'we found one dog missing. "'We did not think much about that till later. "'Indeed, only Danforth and I have thought of it at all. "'The principal things I have been keeping back "'relate to the bodies, and to certain subtle points "'which may or may not lend a hideous "'and incredible kind of rationale to the apparent chaos.' At the time, I tried to keep the men's minds off those points, for it was so much simpler, so much more normal, to lay everything to an outbreak of madness on the part of some of Lake's party. From the look of things, that demon mountain wind must have been enough to drive any man mad in the midst of this center of all earthly mystery and desolation. The crowning abnormality, of course, was the condition of the bodies, men and dogs alike. They had all been in some terrible kind of conflict. "'and were torn and mangled in fiendish and altogether inexplicable ways. "'Death, so far as we could judge, "'had in each case come from strangulation or laceration. "'The dogs had evidently started the trouble, "'for the state of their ill-built corral "'bore witness to its forcible breakage from within. "'It had been set some distance from the camp "'because of the hatred of the animals "'for those hellish Archaean organisms, "'but the precaution seemed to have been taken in vain. "'When left alone in that monstrous wind,' behind flimsy walls of insufficient height. They must have stampeded, whether from the wind itself or from some subtle, increasing odor emitted by the nightmare specimens. One could not say. Those specimens, of course, had been covered with a tent cloth. Yet the low Antarctic sun had beat steadily upon that cloth, and Lake had mentioned that solar heat tended to make the strangely sounded, tough tissues of the things relax and expand." Perhaps the wind had whipped the cloth from over them, and jostled them about in such a way that their more pungent olfactory qualities became manifest despite their unbelievable antiquity. But whatever had happened, it was hideous and revolting enough. Perhaps I had better put squeamishness aside and tell the worst at last, though with a categorical statement of opinion, based on the first-hand observations and most rigid deductions of both Danforth and myself— that the then-missing Gedney was in no way responsible for the loathsome horrors we found. I have said that the bodies were frightfully mangled. Now I must add that some were incised and subtracted from in the most curious, cold-blooded, and inhuman fashion. It was the same with dogs and men. All the healthier, fatter bodies, quadrupedal or bipedal, had had their most solid masses of tissue cut out and removed, as by a careful butcher, and around them was a strange sprinkling of salt." ...taken from the ravaged provision chests on the planes, which conjured up the most horrible associations. The thing had occurred in one of the crude aeroplane shelters from which the plane had been dragged out... ...and subsequent winds had effaced all tracks which could have supplied any plausible theory. Scattered bits of clothing, roughly slashed from the human incision subjects, hinted no clues. It is useless to bring up the half-impression of certain faint snow prints in one shielded corner of the ruined enclosure because that impression did not concern human prints at all, but was clearly mixed up with all the talk of fossil prints which poor Lake had been giving throughout the preceding weeks. One had to be careful of one's imagination, in lee of those overshadowing mountains of madness. As I have indicated, Gedney and one dog turned out to be missing in the end. When we came on that terrible shelter, we had missed two dogs and two men. But the fairly unharmed dissecting tent which we entered after investigating the monstrous graves had something to reveal it was not as lake had left it for the covered parts of the primal monstrosity had been removed from the improvised table indeed we had already realized that one of the six imperfect and insanely buried things we had found the one with the trace of a peculiarly hateful odor must represent the collected sections of the entity which lake had tried to analyze On and around that laboratory table were strewn other things, and it did not take long for us to guess that those things were the carefully, though oddly and inexpertly, dissected parts of one man and one dog. I shall spare the feelings of survivors by omitting mention of the man's identity. Lake's anatomical instruments were missing, but there were evidences of their careful cleansing. The gasoline stove was also gone, though around it we found a curious litter of matches. "'we buried the human parts beside the other ten men, "'and the canine parts with the other thirty-five dogs. "'Concerning bizarre smudges on the laboratory table "'and on the jumble of roughly handled illustrated books scattered near it, "'we were much too bewildered to speculate. "'This formed the worst of the camp horror, "'but other things were equally perplexing. "'The disappearance of Gedney, the one dog, "'the eight uninjured biological specimens, "'the three sledges, and certain instruments,' illustrated technical and scientific books, writing materials, electric torches and batteries, food and fuel, heating apparatus, spare tents, fur suits, and the like, was utterly beyond sane conjecture, as were likewise the spatter-fringed ink blots on certain pieces of paper, and the evidences of curious, alien fumbling and experimentation around the planes and all other mechanical devices, both at the camp and at the boring. The dog seemed to abhor this oddly disordered machinery. Then, too, there was the upsetting of the larder, the disappearance of certain staples, and the jarringly comical heap of tin cans pried open in the most unlikely ways and at the most unlikely places. The profusion of scattered matches, intact, broken, or spent, formed another minor enigma, as did the two or three tent-cloths and fur suits which we found lying about with peculiar and unorthodox slashings, "'conceivably due to clumsy efforts at unimaginable adaptations. "'The maltreatment of the human and canine bodies, "'and the crazy burial of the damaged Archaean specimens, "'were all of a piece with this apparent disintegrative madness. "'In view of just such an eventuality as the present one, "'we carefully photographed all the main evidences of insane disorder at the camp, "'and shall use the prints to buttress our pleas "'against the departure of the proposed Starkweather-Moore expedition.' Our first act after finding the bodies in the shelter was to photograph and open the row of insane graves with the five pointed snow mounds. We could not help noticing the resemblance of these monstrous mounds, with their clusters of grouped dots, to poor Lake's descriptions of the strange greenish soapstones. And when we came on some of the soapstones themselves in the great mineral pile, we found the likeness very close indeed. The whole general formation, it must be made clear, "'seemed abominably suggestive of the starfish head of the Archean entities, "'and we agreed that the suggestion must have worked potently "'upon the sensitized minds of Lake's overwrought party. "'Our own first sight of the actual buried entities formed a horrible moment, "'and set the imaginations of Pabadi and myself "'back to some of the shocking primal myths we had read and heard. "'We all agreed that the mere sight and continued presence of the things must have cooperated with the oppressive polar solitude and demon mountain wind in driving Lake's party mad. For madness, centering in Gedney as the only possible surviving agent, was the explanation spontaneously adopted by everybody so far as spoken utterance was concerned, though I will not be so naive as to deny that each of us may have harbored wild guesses which sanity forbade him to formulate completely. Sherman, Pabody, and McTeague, made an exhaustive aeroplane cruise over all the surrounding territory in the afternoon, sweeping the horizon with field glasses in quest of Gedney and of the various missing things. But nothing came to light. The party reported that the Titan barrier range extended endlessly to right and left alike, without any diminution in height or essential structure. On some of the peaks, though, the regular cube and rampart formations were bolder and plainer, having doubly fantastic similitudes, to the Rorick-painted Asian Hill ruins. The distribution of cryptical cave mouths on the black snow-denuded summits seemed roughly even as far as the range could be traced, in spite of all the prevailing horrors. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages And now back to Chapter 4 At the Mountains of Madness by H. P. Lovecraft. As our guarded messages stated, we rested at midnight after our day of terror and bafflement, but not without a tentative plan for one or more range crossing altitude flights in a lightened plane with aerial camera and geologist's outfit, beginning the following morning. It was decided that Danforth and I try it first, and we awakened at 7 a.m., intending an early flight. However, heavy winds, MENTIONED IN OUR BRIEF, BULLETIN TO THE OUTSIDE WORLD, DELAYED OUR START, TILL NEARLY NINE O'CLOCK. I'VE ALREADY REPEATED THE NON-COMMENTAL STORY WE TOLD THE MEN AT CAMP, AND RELAYED OUTSIDE, AFTER OUR RETURN, SIXTEEN HOURS LATER. IT IS NOW MY TERRIBLE DUTY TO AMPLIFY THIS ACCOUNT BY FILLING IN THE MERCIFUL BLANKS WITH HINTS OF WHAT WE REALLY SAW IN THE HIDDEN Transmontane WORLD, HINTS OF THE REVELATIONS WHICH HAVE FINALLY DRIVEN DANFORTH TO A NERVOUS COLLAPSE. I wish he would add a really frank word about the thing which he thinks he alone saw, even though it was probably a nervous delusion, and which was perhaps the last straw that put him where he is. But he is firm against that. All I can do is repeat his later disjointed whispers about what set him shrieking as the plane soared back through the wind-tortured mountain pass after that real intangible shock which I shared. This will form my last word. If the plain signs of surviving elder horrors, in what I disclose, be not enough to keep others from meddling with the inner Antarctic, or at least from prying too deeply beneath the surface of that ultimate waste of forbidden secrets and inhuman, eons-cursed desolation, the responsibility for unnameable and perhaps immeasurable evils will not be mine. Danforth and I, studying the notes made by Pabody in his afternoon flight and checking up with a sextant, had calculated that the lowest available pass in the range lay somewhat to the right of us, within sight of camp, at about 23,000 or 24,000 feet above sea level. For this point then, we first headed in the lightened plain as we embarked on our flight of discovery. The camp itself, on foothills which sprang from a high continental plateau, was some 12,000 feet in altitude. Hence the actual height increase necessary was not so vast as it might seem. Nevertheless, we were acutely conscious of the rarefied air and intense cold as we rose. For on account of visibility conditions, we had to leave the cabin windows open. We were dressed, of course, in our heaviest furs. As we drew near the forbidding peaks, dark and sinister above the line of crevasse-riven snow and interstitial glaciers, we noticed more and more the curiously regular formations clinging to the slopes, and thought again of the strange Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorick. The ancient and wind-weathered rock strata fully verified all of Lake's bulletins and proved that these pinnacles had been towering up in exactly the same way since a surprisingly early time in Earth's history, perhaps over 50 million years. How much higher they had once been, it was futile to guess, but everything about this strange region pointed to obscure atmospheric influences unfavorable to change and calculated to retard the usual climactic processes of rock disintegration. "'but it was the mountainside tangle of regular cubes, ramparts, and cave mouths "'which fascinated and disturbed us most. "'I studied them with a field-glass and took aerial photographs while Danforth drove, "'and at times I relieved him at the controls, "'though my aviation knowledge was purely an amateurs, "'in order to let him use the binoculars. "'We could easily see that much of the material of the things "'was a lightish, archaean quartzite.' "'unlike any formation visible over broad areas of the general surface, "'and that their regularity was extreme and uncanny "'to an extent which poor Lake had scarcely hinted. "'As he had said, their edges were crumbled and rounded "'from untold eons of savage weathering, "'but their preternatural solidity and tough material "'had saved them from obliteration. "'Many parts, especially those closest to the slopes, "'seemed identical in substance with the surrounding rock surface.' The whole arrangement looked like the ruins of Machu Picchu in the Andes, or the primal foundation walls of Quiche, as dug up by the Oxford Field Museum expedition in 1929. And both Danforth and I obtained that occasional impression of separate Cyclopean blocks which Lake had attributed to his flight companion, Carol. How to account for such things in this place was frankly beyond me, and I felt queerly humbled as a geologist. Igneous formations often have strange regularities, like the famous Giant's Causeway in Ireland. But this stupendous range, despite Lake's original suspicion of smoking cones, was above all else non volcanic in evident structure. The curious cave mouths, near which the odd formations seemed most abundant, presented another, albeit a lesser, puzzle because of their regularity of outline. They were, as Lake's bulletin had said, often approximately square or semicircular. As if the natural orifices had been shaped to greater symmetry by some magic hand. Their numerousness and wide distribution were remarkable and suggested that the whole region was honeycombed with with tunnels dissolved out of limestone strata. Such glimpses as we secured did not extend far within the caverns, but we saw that they were apparently clear of stalactites and stalagmites. Outside, Those parts of the mountain slopes, adjoining the apertures, seemed invariably smooth and regular, and Danforth thought that the slight cracks and pittings of the weathering tended toward unusual patterns. Filled as he was with the horrors and strangenesses discovered at the camp, he hinted that the pittings vaguely resembled those baffling groups of dots sprinkled over the primeval greenish soapstones, so hideously duplicated on the madly conceived snow mounds above those six buried monstrosities. We had risen gradually in flying over the higher foothills and along toward the relatively low pass we had selected. As we advanced, we occasionally looked down at the snow and ice of the land route, wondering whether we could have attempted the trip with the simpler equipment of earlier days. Somewhat to our surprise, we saw that the terrain was far from difficult as such things go, and that despite the crevices and other bad spots, it would not have been likely to deter the sledges of a Scott, a Shackleton, or an Amundsen. Some of the glaciers appeared to lead up to wind-bared passes with unusual continuity, and upon reaching our chosen pass, we found that its case formed no exception. Our sensations of tense expectancy as we prepared to round the crest and peer out over an untrodden world can hardly be described on paper, even though we had no cause to think the regions beyond the range essentially different from those already seen and traversed. The touch of evil mystery in these barrier mountains and in the beckoning sea of opalescent sky glimpsed betwixt their summits, was a highly subtle and attenuated manner not to be explained in literal words. Rather, was it an affair of vague psychological symbolism and aesthetic association, a thing mixed up with exotic poetry and paintings, and with archaic myths lurking in shunned and forbidden volumes. Even the wind's burden held a peculiar strain of conscious malignity and for a second it seemed that the composite sound included a bizarre musical whistling or piping over a wide range as the blast swept in and out of the omnipresent and resonant cave mouths. There was a cloudy note of reminiscent repulsion in this sound, as complex and unplaceable as any of the other dark impressions. We were now, after a slow ascent, at a height of 23,570 feet, according to the aneroid, and had left the region of clinging snow definitely below us. Up here were only dark, bare rock slopes, and the start of rough-ribbed glaciers, but with those provocative cubes, ramparts, and echoing cave mouths to add a portent of the unnatural, the fantastic, and the dreamlike. Looking along the line of high peaks, I thought I could see the one mentioned by poor lake, with a rampart exactly on top. It seemed to be half lost in a queer Antarctic haze, such a haze, perhaps, as had been responsible for Lake's early notion of volcanism. The past loomed directly before us, smooth and windswept between its jagged and malignly frowning pylons. Beyond it was a sky fretted with swirling vapors and lighted by the low polar sun, the sky of that mysterious farther realm upon which we felt no human eye had ever gazed. A few more feet of altitude, and we would behold that realm. Danforth and I— unable to speak except in shouts amidst the howling, piping wind that raced through the pass and added to the noise of the unmuffled engines, exchanged eloquent glances. And then, having gained those last few feet, we did indeed stare across the momentous divide and over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien earth. Join us next week, Sunday night, for Chapter 4, of At the Mountains of Madness, by H.P. Lovecraft. Hope you're enjoying our story. If you are, please do take a moment and send us a review. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
1: Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contain high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England. Not sheep. We trace like a mother because let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.